0: Hello, and welcome to Oh No, Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal, but take part ourselves.
1: Yep. When they make claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Carrie Poppy.
0: And I'm Ross Blotcher. And uh, we've embarked on some other investigations since our Scientology episodes, but I think all of you have been wishing and hoping that we would get back to Scientology.
1: was a pretty unpopular No, no, they said
0: nine episodes, (laughs) not enough. We want to hear more. And while we have been summarily rejected from the Church of Scientology. It does seem that way. We have some interesting people we can talk to. And I I think we brought on a very interesting person today.
1: Yep. Yep. A very special guest, Mr. Chris Shelton.
2: Welcome, Chris Chris Shelton. Well, hello. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So Uh, Chris,
1: you know Scientology intimately. Maybe more intimately than you wish to.
2: Way more intimately than any human being should be allowed to be intimate with such a thing. <laughs> if any of you haven't heard of Chris, he's a 27-year,
0: a well, he was a 27-year member of the Church of Scientology, spent 17 of those years in the Sea Org. That's right. And you were really one of the ground troops. You were getting a lot of stuff done for the church. Yeah. A big cog in the wheel, if you will. Yeah. That's right. Maybe you can just kind of tell people a bit about that. Just a a quick introduction, because I know you could tell us for hours. Oh, yeah.
2: I have literally written a book about it. I grew up in Scientology. I started doing courses and classes when I was 15. Right out of high school, when I was 17, I joined staff, which means I started working for the church. Now, this was in Santa Barbara, which means it's a local city church. So it's just for Santa Barbara. That wasn't Sea Org. But after eight years of that, I was frustrated that Scientology wasn't expanding, wasn't growing, we weren't making our goals of clearing the planet. And so in 1995, I moved up, and I use little air quotes here, even though nobody can see me doing that, uh, but I moved up, got promoted to the C organizations. And I worked in the C organization from '95 until I left at the end of 2012. That was a fun, fun time. As you, yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: Well, so I've been learning because, as you mentioned, uh, he's written a book on the subject, uh, Scientology A to Xenu, which I can heartily recommend. I'm almost finished with it myself. And you do a great job in the book of describing not only your own story and what you went through, but how it relates to Scientology's organization, the structure itself, the beliefs themselves, and uh, right. break it all down. And, and even though we had our experience that we've described in detail... Uh, it's added a lot to my understanding, especially well, especially with the uh, higher levels, and and I feel it's it's all very consistent with my story, and explains a lot of the things that Carrie and I saw. Mm-hmm. And, and that was kind of one of our first questions that uh, we wanted to ask you, which is just listening to our episodes. Was there anything that kind of stood out to you where you thought, oh, wow, if they really kind of understood what was going on here, they, they missed out on this piece, or maybe they misunderstood some piece of doctrine or something. Was there anything that kind of stood out to you? Like they really didn't understand that as well as they could have.
2: We discussed when you were on my show that, you know, your experience with the Dianetics technique was not uh, necessarily what it what I think they would have wanted it to have been Mm -hmm. where they basically overran you on that that Mm -hmm. dog incident or whatever losing your dog or whatever that was right and I think any Scientologist would look at that and go oh yeah no they didn't really track with how that would be run or done although I have to put my this huge caveat on that because here I am sort of saying that there's something workable to it or implying that there's hmm. some workability to it, and yet, in the you know four years since I've left, that could have been a purposeful change. <laughs> oh, oh, maybe. Like there's a lot of differences. It, let me clarify. There's a lot of differences between how Scientology used to be practiced and how it's practiced now, even within it's, the last decade. Yeah, oh, yeah, yes. Oh, oh yes.
3: Yeah, okay. Much since
2: the last decade, but these are nuances that are difficult to explain or understand when you're just getting in. You know, you had to do and experience and go through the things you guys did and experienced and went through in order to get to an understanding that you have now. I could sit for hours trying to explain all of those things to you, but you having lived them you now have you know a much greater subjective understanding of, of the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And yeah. hearing it described is never
0: going to be as arduous or difficult. You know, your imagination can never quite match up with uh,
2: just how insanely boring and and tedious it can be. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I could tell you how boring it is or I could tell you how tedious it can become, but now that you've done it, now you know how bad it can get. Right. You know. I've got a
0: million uh, questions coursing through my head as we talk. Uh, well, one yep. that immediately leaps to mind there is just how do they supply so much busy work for everybody? I, I think if you gave me 30,000 or so you know, loyal followers and said, keep them busy every day, sunrise to sunset, I would be like, mm, what am I going to have them do? I don't know. Uh, but it seems like Scientology always has work for people mm-hmm. to do. Can you describe a little bit just about- Oh, I
1: think I could do it.
0: Okay, do it, Carrie.
1: No, I, I don't mean... Oh, I you could just, put people I think work. I could make, yeah. I mean, they do it on such like a basic level. It's like paw through the dictionary and people are like, all right, I'm going <laughs> to read the definitions of words 35 times. All right.
3: <laughs>
2: yes, the, yeah. the, the technology, the, some of the methodologies can be quite excruciating. But organizationally, they are, on the surface, they're all about getting in more people. But all the actions that they take are so horrifically bad at getting that done. Yeah. But that's what a lot of the busy work goes to. And they do spin their wheels because they're doing things that don't work. They're writing letters to people who haven't been around in 30 or 40 years. Like, that's not creepy. Yeah. right? Yeah. And they don't look at it that way. They really don't think that what they're doing is creepy at all. Or when they stand out on street corners and are like passing out their, their, they're doing their what they call body routing, right? I'm going to stop with the air quotes, but you know. (laughs) Yeah, just assume uh, an air quote around every Scientology term you hear.
1: (laughs) Or just around Chris's head.
2: <laughs> that's right. I'm just the air quote king. But they do this body routing. Like We literally call it body routing. They're going to take your body and route it into the building, right? They're going to yeah, direct that's, it in That's the
1: pretty heavens gait
2: Well, yeah. But but because Hubbard used these terms and because this is just the lingo, they don't see the creepy factor to what mm, they're doing. Right. And so oh, wow. So they're literally blind to their own bad spots and then their teeth gnashingly frustrated that they can't get more people in or they somehow can't get the brilliance of L. Ron Hubbard across to people right. And but they're blind to their own faults in how they're going about it. I had wondered about that because for example I received a phone call
0: at my work number which I know I never supplied to them from a Scientologist mm. and I thought okay, is this supposed to be a subtle message? Because I gave them a home number, I gave them a cell phone number, but they used my work number. And I thought, oh, are you trying to say something subtle like here? Like
1: I can I can find you?
0: Yeah, and if so, that is a really risky venture because that could drive me on either side of the knife point. I could say like, oh, geez, I'm scared of you guys, I better pay attention. Or I could be like, screw you guys, Right, uh,
2: you're right. invasive. But you're saying they're just kind of Tone deaf to this. That, that's exactly what I'm saying. Is that, and this is your run of the mill, you know, Scientologist, right? The, the regular Joe Blow staff members, they're just desperate to talk to people and try to convince them of the greatness of Scientology. And they think that the, their attitude they approach it with is everyone's a Scientologist, they just don't know it yet. Mm hmm. And so they keep this positive, upbeat sort of idea, and they're just going to, you know, get somehow they just have to get across to you. You know, they have to find the thing that's going to get you to, you know, oh, right. Yeah, of course, this is the the thing for me. I'll come right in, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that's the way that they're approaching it. And they they just don't see that the stalking and harassing techniques that are built into the the sort of the DNA of how they go about disseminating the, the good works, so right. to speak, are just creepy as hell.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, <laughs> they just don't see it.
1: Right. You know, I'm really curious about the independent Scientologists, which you mentioned uh, during your interview with us. Mm -hmm. And I've run into a few times. And There's actually a really good documentary as well on Amazon just about independent Scientologists that I watched recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're such a huge group. And I've Mm -hmm. noticed... Well, okay. I mean, not compared to the church itself, of course. But, you know, this is true of a lot of religions. There will be people who leave because they find the organized version of of the religion unpalatable. But then they'll say, but I still believe the information of the religion. I still believe in the holy text. I still believe in the founder. So I'm going to kind of strike out on my own and still do uh, what the original founder intended and um so i think that's fascinating that there are still scientologists who do that you're not one of those i get the impression um but what do you think of, yeah what do you think of that what, what do you think of the people who still say like well there's something to auditing the church is just doing it wrong
2: right there's a it's a nuanced situation I've come to some conclusions that some might consider controversial but but I but I stand by them and that is that I think independent Scientology for the most part is a stepping stone in the recovery process of exiting Scientology overall right It, it even feels like you dabbled in that
0: for just a moment an FNS second before you really like you still wanted to pursue Scientology but then they, Treated you so poorly that it kind of drove you just away from it altogether.
2: Oh, yeah. Let me clarify. When I, because no, because I actually did not do Independent Scientology, but let me clarify what you're talking about there. I left the Sea Organization in December 2012, and I became a public Scientologist, still in good standing, still wanting to do Scientology just like you guys were doing. I wanted to go in. I wanted to pay for services. I wanted to be part of the group. And that was my intention. And I carried forward on that intention, like with both barrels. I was stopped by Scientology because the C organization is a vindictive organization. And when you leave it, they want you and expect you to just kind of disappear for a little while and just kind of just kind of float away and then sort of come back on your, you know, crawling to them and asking, you know, to please, please, sir, may I have some more? <laughs> sort of attitude. That's that's exactly how they expect you to be, very um, penitent. And then they, you know, you pay off your free orders debt, you do your lower conditions, you do the amends that they want you to do, and they'll through their good graces they'll let you back into doing services in Scientology. Well, I didn't. I, I was so kind of naive and really stupid. As, a, as an ex Org member, that I didn't know that that was what was wanted. I thought I could just get on with being a Scientologist, right? Yeah. This is all unwritten, moral, sort of cultural stuff within, this, within Scientology's world. And you said so, you kind of forgot your previous feelings towards ex Org members. Exactly. I did. I did. I was very naive. So I started getting, you know, the hammer, the, the hard end of the stick immediately when I started trying to get to do Scientology when I had moved to Twin Cities. And they didn't like that. They were like, nope, you can't go in the organization. You can't be on services. you got to do your amends work and all of that. And it was that harsh attitude with which I was being dealt that drove me to what is going on? And I had mm. seen some stuff on the internet and I had sort of, mm, no, but then I started going, mm, maybe. Mm-hmm. And that's what put me down the rabbit hole. And eventually it by December 2013, I was speaking out on the internet and I was declared a suppressive person. Okay. okay.
0: So, so you were so- kind of at the same time rejecting both the church organization itself and the
2: beliefs themselves. I did. I skipped right to right to go um, because in going down the rabbit hole, going down the internet, learning all this stuff, I found out very quickly how what a fraud L. Ron Hubbard was, and that you know really messes with your head after 27 years yeah. of thinking this guy is the smartest guy in the world. So 2013 was sort of the the worst year of my life in a number of ways, mm-hmm. having to you know all that. And that's one reason why I quit finding critical thinking with being such a a tremendous good timing on my part, that I could learn something that could start putting all of this in perspective and learning about skepticism and James Randi and Carl Sagan. Oh, I'm not the only dupe in the world who's fallen for woo. I didn't even know what woo was, you know, and that's, that was the later part of that year, and that's when I started speaking out. So so I skipped the independent Scientology step. But getting back to your question about that, I see it as a stepping stone because a lot of people moved a lot slower than I did in that recovery process, mm-hmm. in the discovery phase of finding out that it's not all just current church leadership, but actually L. Ron Hubbard wasn't really well put together. For some people, it's a very slow process. And also, and it's understandable because they want to hold on to the value that they feel they got from Scientology. They invested a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy in it. You know, who wants to just walk away from all that? So they hold on to that. And sometimes they hold on a little too tight. And those are the people who claim the title of independent Scientologists. And then they cherry pick the parts that they feel worked for them and they reject the parts that they feel didn't work for them. And over time, those parts that didn't work for them tend to grow and the parts that work for them tend to shrink as they get more and more real world experience and get more time and distance away from the organization and Mm. the the application of it. That's what I've observed.
1: Yeah, that's so insightful, Chris. So for you, do you feel like you've been able to take that experience, those 27 years that now may feel sort of lost. Do you find a way to make those useful in a new way? Uh, Like, oh, this is a way that this has made me into the person I am? Or have you cut those off as sort of losses and I'm going to move on with my life in a new venture?
2: I guess I'd have to say both. I don't have any regrets on the whole experience because it is, and I have said it's because it's made me who I am. And and, and the views that I have and the things that I learned and all of that um, come from all those years of experience. So I don't look back on it and go, oh, God, Scientology just took my life from me. You know, I don't, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. I, I try to be fairly objective. I, I know I'm biased and I can't help but be biased, but I try to be as objective as I can in looking at Okay, what was wrong with that experience? What happened that that was, you know, authoritarian, or what happened that that really did that really was victimization? Because there were instances of that, but I try to walk away from it, also validating and acknowledging that there were good things that happened, that there were positive things that happened, that even in the depths of the worst possible time that I had there, that I experienced some positive growth. That's a little hard to do. It's hard to reconcile. It's and it's, it's taken some time for me to. To see the good and the bad, but I try not to paint it all with the paint with a black and white paintbrush, you know, I try to apply nuances to the whole experience.
0: That's what I really appreciate about your approach and, and kind of what you've put out there in terms of your book and, and public speaking. You, you didn't leave and immediately just turn into this, I, I don't want to say enemy of Scientology, but like, you know, you, you're not painting them in a caricatured brush. You know, you're saying, hey, these are right. these are people, you know, they're trying to get by. They think they're doing good. You're willing to admit some good motives, especially on the people, you know, who are doing all the day-to-day stuff. And mm-hmm. it, it just feels very, you know, sensible and practical. And uh, you kind of kept a level head and remained a nice guy through all of it, which is, I think, impressive. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I've, I've I've tried very hard to be that way. One thing that you said uh, really struck me. Uh, I, I first saw you and met you when you gave a talk at the Center for Inquiry Los Angeles, along with yeah. uh, Jamie DeWolf, uh, who we're hoping to follow up with as well. Uh, you were talking about some of the kind of Uh, quasi mystical experiences that you had in Scientology that you're still not um, willing to fully discount, even though you realize it was just a a product of this process and it wasn't working the way they thought it was, I still got something personally out of it. Can you describe that?
2: Sure. In the process of doing the Scientology counseling, you know, the auditing, you're made to recall things from your current life and then, of course, you know, it's expected that you're going to go into past lives. And um I look at I look at the past life stuff now and I go, okay, I was really good at making some stuff up, And that was really nice imagination on my part because I don't I, I don't I don't have any proof to any, for any of that. But there is definitely something to be said about looking over the mistakes that you've made in your life and some of the experiences that you've had in your life and and memory and whatnot. I know now how horribly unreliable our memories can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, When you're in Scientology, you're uh, under the idea, the impression that it's all available to you and it's all accessible somehow. On the time track. (laughs) That's right. On that time track. That's right. You know, you sort of, I developed a, a way of thinking that Almost anything that I could remember probably happened to me at some point in the last seventy-six trillion years, yes, right? God, and
3: right?
2: Just a matter of, a matter of fitting, <laughs> slotting it in on the right time, you know. Oh, well, this was what happened, you know, thirty-six million years ago. Whereas this thing I'm remembering that's kind of similar to it. Well, that was actually forty-seven point five million years ago, right? right? <laughs> so you, you know, you just like are, are making all this stuff up. There is something to be said for, uh, I don't know the words for it, you know, psychoanalysis, regression therapy, remembering things, whatever term you want to use for it. I will definitely say that, you know, for a certain number of people, uh, for a certain percentage of people, there is a therapeutic uh, value to that, you know, to like, oh, God, yeah, <laughs> you know, because you can look at what you've done in the past, you can evaluate it in the present, and modify your behavior in the future accordingly. Well, that's what's wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with yes. that. And that I believe that the gains that people do get from Dianetics comes from exactly what I just described. Now, does that mean it works on 100% of the people 100% of the time and that there's a reactive mind? Absolutely not. doesn't mean any of those things,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, but I'll assign some positiveness to that. And I had gains where I had auditing sessions with Dianetics and with Scientology techniques, and and did some self-examination like that, and changed my behavior, and changed my perspective on mistakes I'd made in the past, or things that I looked at, and I could get a bit of a different perspective on it, and went, oh yeah, no, maybe I'm maybe I'm not such a bad person after all, you know, and this sort of thing, and have a more positive outlook as a result, and I'm I'm naturally optimistic rather than pessimistic. So maybe it's my nature that contributes to that a little bit too. I'm I'm being a little general here, but that's some of what I got out of auditing and how I look at it now as to, well, why did I get that? Why was there positive change from that? Yeah, sure, there was some.
1: And we're talking about, so memories that presumably you were unknowingly fabricating, right? So like, so you're remembering being king of prussia and killing somebody and then you say, and then you are like oh now i'm going to be a better person and not right. do that okay uh- <laughs> well
2: like okay i'll give you a very specific example is there's a type of auditing which you guys probably didn't even go anywhere near called uh-huh. uh, false purpose rundown fprd no and no, okay, no, but okay I'm that's so glad I'm there's glad there's an acronym, an acronym. Yeah. thank god <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, FPRD, got you. Yes, FPRD, false purpose rundown was developed in the 1980s. Actually, that and it's acronym,
1: t- by the way, takes just as long to say as the actual words.
2: Yeah, well, go yeah. on.
3: Uh-huh.
2: FPRD, FPRD, F-P-R-D. <laughs> So, so the FPRD uh, was was something that was is Scientology. It's not Dianetics, and it's meant to go directly into finding what would be called false purposes or evil intentions that people have that they carry around with them and kind of coring them, just pulling them right out of you. Okay. Okay. So people do bad things all the time, eat their kids, they steal money, they do this and this and this Hubbard's theory was that the reason for that was because of decisions that you made as a spiritual being Trelania ago. And you've been operating on those bad judgments or bad decisions ever since.
1: Okay. And those
2: decisions were called what in Scientology they're called postulates or, or you know, mental positive decisions. MPDs, mental positive decisions. Okay, sorry. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but they were made during moments of stress and confusion. Uh, MSCs. You know, <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll stop. Sorry. <laughs> this is awesome. You guys are actually making up new acronyms for Scientology. <laughs> As though they needed more. So you have this moment of confusion and stress, and then because of that confusion, you create this intention, this this evil intention, like twenty-three trillion trillion years ago. You're floating around in the universe and you're making planets because that's how big and powerful you were back then. And the planets aren't quite doing what you want them to be doing. Now, I'm just making this stuff up. Sure. But, you, so know, they. <laughs> you know, gravity doesn't exist yet. Right. And so you're just kind of, you know, boink, boink, creating planets and, and mash them together like billiard balls or whatever. And, you know, maybe putting little populations on them or whatever. And that, and they're not quite doing what you want them to do. And so you just make this decision because you're confused. You don't know why this is happening. That you just, you know, oh, can I swear? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. You just say, fuck it. And you just, I'm just going to mash them all together. And I'm just going to destroy everything. And so you make this decision. I'm going to to destroy everything. Right? This is just uh-huh. this, this, this decision you make. And you're going to go along in life. And you're going to destroy everything. Well, you could look at that now and see how... You know that would affect your behavior over the Trelania sure, because you're sure. around destroying everything, <laughs> because you're carrying around this evil intention to destroy everything. Sounds
1: like and a biblical it, flood, but yeah,
2: exactly. Uh-huh. God has a lot of these evil intentions. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> the biblical God, right? Right. You in FPRD auditing, the idea is to go back, recall these these times that you've done horrible, awful things, and find the evil intention behind it. And sort of excoriate it, right? I mean, now, it makes reason, sense.
3: Yeah. But yeah, it's, well, yeah but I, mean,
2: I, I wouldn't say it's the most parsimonious
0: way of uh, explaining these vicissitudes that we have. <laughs> yes. Well, it's a,
2: it's a, it's an idea. Uh, you know, it's a theory. So,
1: <laughs> like gravity. So
2: I received about a thousand hours of false purpose. Oh run my god! Whoa! Okay, I got a lot of this. A thousand. And and I did that because. And this is a whole other story, and we can get into this if you'd like to, or we can just skip right over it, but I did this RPF, this Rehabilitation Project Force, okay? Well, when you're on the RPF, this is almost all you're doing. The majority of the program is FD auditing. Oh. Various parts of your life. So, I got a lot of this. So, So I found a lot of evil intentions that I had come up with trelania ago right? I was still operating on. And the only reason I'm explaining all this, giving all this ridiculous backstory is because I actually had some positive change in my life through believing that I was excoriating and getting rid of Mm -hmm. these evil intentions from my past. And I no longer felt like I had to operate that way
1: and therefore
2: changed my behavior as a result.
1: I can totally do that. I mean, it's like someone burning sage in their living room and then feeling like, you know, something is gone and the room is cleansed. And whether that happened or not, it it has a psychological effect and it helps you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You got it, and that that psychological effect is not something I'm going to look back on and go, "Well, that didn't happen, or that right. was all bullshit, or whatever." No. no, you know, hey, I I was a better person for it. Right. Now, is it because that happened trillions of years ago? Hell, no. Right. But can you change your behavior through your you know through more positive thinking? Yeah, sure. Why not?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just want to clarify, just for anyone who's listening, who's like, "What what the RPF. crap is the RPF?" Yeah. So the Rehabilitation Project Force is basically. Basically where you when you're it's punishment, you've been you've been a bad, bad boy and you're sent to the corner. This is your alone time.
2: Yeah, it's a prison program. It's a program of what they call rehabilitation, but it's really reeducation. And it's very, very comparable to a Maoist reeducation camp as described by psychologist Robert Lifton when he did research on this in the 50s and 60s. And it's a it's a group activity. You're, you're sequestered off from the rest of the group. When you're in the C organization, this is C organization. You you're only with the RPF. You can't talk to anybody outside the RPF unless you're talked to first. There's no letters or phone calls. There's no holidays. There's no time off. It is 24 seven doing this very intense work study program. And where was this located? Was that in Hemet? No, it was in the same base where you guys did your services. Oh my oh, goodness! At The LA org. Blue.
0: Okay. Yeah. So yeah,
2: now it's not. It wasn't in the building where you guys were. It was in a building across the the base, but it was on okay. that base where you guys are. You guys were in the Los Angeles org, which is right on Sunset. Right. But you walk down the street, and you've got Asho the St. Hill, right? And then you've mm-hmm. got that big building with the wings and the Scientology sign on it. That is where all the Sea Org members live, that building. Right. And in the basement of that building is right. where I did the RPF. So that's okay. on the same block. Yes. Oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah. I've yeah. Heard, I've heard about that basement.
0: Yeah. Wow. I live there. That's why I was initially surprised when you said you had done a thousand hours of this because and we should come back to the RPF. But you also made the point that Sea Org members, ostensibly, when they join the Sea Org, it's with the idea that they're going to get a lot of these services for free But Mm -hmm. they're so busy working all the time, they never really get a
2: chance to work their way up the bridge. That's right. So, that's right. In 17 years in the Sea Org, I did not make one step of progress on that bridge to total freedom. Not one. Man, like, you know, one of the guys that we work with
0: at the (laughs) LA Org, he had been in it for 30 years and he had just become clear like the previous summer. Right. And I remember thinking, oh, that's weird. And the other guy who was working with me, we called Ben he wasn't clear yet and he'd been in it for like 27 years. I'm thinking, how is? I mean, that's, that's not even to the OT levels yet. How does that's someone right. who's dedicated their lives to it not even get to work up themselves? And how can they sell this to other people when they haven't experienced it for themselves?
1: And, and tell me, Chris, if you think I noticed something valid here. I saw something very different between the people who told us they had gone clear and the people who hadn't. The people who said they had gone clear were sort of, were very controlled and sort of had this like robotic demeanor. The guy who was working so hard to get clear and no one would clear him was still very bright and energetic and, and like would laugh at our jokes and still seemed very human. And I really felt like, well, that's why no one will clear you. <laughs> I'm serious like it really felt like well you haven't reached that detachment they
3: want
2: well it's indoctrinated and that's that detachment you were seeing is, is a result of indoctrination it's not an accident Yeah. you know a lot of the people who work for the organization and especially in the C organization achieve those levels before they got into the C organization because mm-hmm. you don't make a lot of progress when you're in and I'll, and I'll just sum that up by two words martyr complex Hmm. Mm. That's that's what happens when you get in there. You just work, 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 work. And and it's always you're always of second importance. You're always, you know, yeah, I'll handle myself later. I'm too busy handling all these people. So that happens. But in terms of what you were talking about with the detachment, when a person reaches the state of clear, one of the points of indoctrination is they're given an issue uh, by that was written by Ellen Hubbard called an open letter to all clears. Mm. And it's it's not confidential. You could you could look it up. But he says in there that you are now an example. You have to set an example, right? Other people are going to be watching you and looking at you and monitoring your behavior because you're clear. Right. And and True. there's a certain degree of truth to that. Yeah. So clears and OTs have a lot of attention on themselves presenting a good, you know, what they think right. is good is a good image. And again, you get that delusional business of they're not aw- they're not self-aware enough to realize how creepy and weird that <laughs> is. They think that's how you're supposed to be, right? right? So that's probably some of what you were seeing.
1: Do you think detachment is part of that teaching? It's like emotion is supposed to sort of not land in you. You're supposed to be that Teflon pan that, that emotion just kind of comes and goes and doesn't land on you. Yes. Uh, yeah,
2: okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's all a part of, it's not easy to explain, but but the higher up you go, the more free you're supposed to be. This would be the words that they would use. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the more free you're supposed to be, the more at cause you're supposed to be over matter, energy, space, and time and over the physical universe. And so if you are free of something or are at cause over something, then that means you're not... In it, they're separate from it, and that's what they're striving to be. In your experience with it, you might not have gotten to this level of of view on it, but there's a contempt and a sort of view towards the physical universe by Scientologists. They don't, this is all supposed to be a trap. We're (laughs) all trapped here. The earth is a prison planet, the physical universe is a prison planet. Alex Jones. That's right. <laughs> oh my God. You would, oh, remind me later to talk about the parallels between Alex Jones and PrisonPlanet.com and San I Hall. will.
1: Okay. Alan
2: Hubbard specifically calls Earth a prison planet. <gasps> way before Alex Jones Can't came wait. up with it. So, Can't it. Car- wait. Carrie is really excited Oh, over I just here.
1: made my dog bark. I got so excited.
2: Oh yes. So they view everything around us as a trap, as the matrix. Wow. And so it's kind of like if you look at actually this is a great analogy. This is a perfect analogy. You know, does Neo go into the matrix and look around and go, I love this place? Absolutely not. Right? He's looking at it, going, This place is everybody here is trapped and I want to get the hell out of it. Right. That's how Scientologists think of it's life. Very, very Gnostic, just that all yes. of this is an illusion. Yes. Interesting very Gnostic and that the truth will set you free.
0: Right. And that the truth exists in these layers of attainment that you have to kind of work your way up and keep hidden from the nov- novitiates, the the novices, um, because right. it might harm them. And that's, that's an interesting piece of like the OT structure is that, you know, yep. the, the reason they can't reveal these sacred truths are because it could harm you. Right. And it sounds like you very truly had that fear, like, oh, no, if I'm going to read this stuff, it's going to it may kill me, uh, pneumonia or
2: something. Oh, no, no doubt. I mean, th- th- we took that very seriously. That yeah. is not hyperbole. That is not a, a, like a morality tale or something. Scientologists truly believe that if they're exposed to that material before they're ready for it, that they will develop pneumonia and they will die.
1: Pneumonia <laughs> specifically? Why, why pneumonia? Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's one of the things, because it's what Hubbard said. Oh, okay. Yeah. I missed
1: said, that okay, detail. You'll, get sick,
2: you'll it'll just run. it'll just rip up your body, and you'll just die. So returning to the RPF, you were sent
0: to that, and it was interesting, uh, I think you said in your book that close to half of the people who go into the Rehabilitation Project force end up leaving. They just, like, escape
2: because they can't take it anymore. They either barely just taking off one day. Right. or they route out. That's the term that's used for officially leaving standardly. In other words, you've you've left in agreement with Scientology's procedures for leaving, which take months and months and months. And they let you go and you're still in good standing with the church because you're still bowing and scraping to them.
3: Okay. Um,
2: I think it's well over 50% leave the RPF rather than finish it. It is a grueling, grueling program. It took me three years, three months to get through it.
1: So, okay. So uh, the one thing I'm missing there is the people who are dismissed in good standing, but don't Mm -hmm. finish there. Are they... In, in what sense have they left but haven't finished?
2: Well, they haven't finished the RPF. Okay. So if you're on the RPF, you're in the Sea Organization. Right. Right? The, okay. the, the RPF is a subset Oh, so they're of the still C sort of
1: dismissed from the Sea Org.
2: If you leave the RPF, you're leaving the Sea Org.
1: Got it. Okay. Now
2: you're a public Scientologist. Okay. Now Pay for your services, da 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 da. Okay,
1: okay. Because if you so want to stay in the Sea Org,
2: the only way out is through.
1: Right, right.
3: <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Got it. Okay.
1: That,
2: well, yeah, there is no other way. You can be reprieved from the RPF. You can request uh, a review be done of, of why you were sent there. Very rarely does somebody get reprieved. So, why right? were
1: you sent there? What'd you do?
2: Well, I was a bad boy, I was married. And I engaged in a extramarital phone sex relationship with a Scientologist, Mm -hmm. a woman who had been in the Sea Org, but was now uh, working at a class five church. And my marriage was not, you know, it was having some ups and downs. And so I started kind of getting flirty with this woman and she was getting flirty with me and she was married. And so because we had a couple months of this, you know, sort of like we never did anything physical. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, Like ever. Right. The one time we got together where it looked like we would. I couldn't do it. I was married and I was like, I can't do this. I Hmm. love my wife. I can't. I I can't do this. And I'm the one who put a stop to it. Eventually, after about six months, I was like, Okay, that's it. This is ripping me up with guilt. I can't deal with this anymore. This has to stop. And so we stopped. And then about a month later, I confessed to
0: ethics people wow so they didn't discover your communications or anything you just you felt
2: felt so convicted about it that you totally got away with it and yet i didn't because i confessed and so when i confessed the world exploded my you know oh man and i got a very severe justice action called a committee of evidence and i was like i'd already Tanked. I'd already, this was in 2003 or 2004, I believe is when this happened, 2004. I'd already had had some very, very bad experiences as a Sea Org member and was not doing well, was pretty disillusioned with the whole thing. Then this happened. So I was like totally dejected and thought, I need the RPF. I don't know what else to do with myself. Mm. So that's how that happened. And then I ended up there. And within the first three days, I was like, "What the fuck am I doing here? I need to get the fuck out of here, because it's not about rehabilitation; it's about punishment and reeducation." And yet, you stuck with it for three years. Now, whenever I hear
0: RPF, I get a mental image of someone bent over and scrubbing a toilet with a toothbrush.
3: Me too. Is
2: <laughs> did you ever scrub a toilet with a toothbrush? Is that an accurate image? Uh no. Although I did scrub a lot of floors and a lot like of toilets. Yeah, okay. no, I, we had, uh, they we give had, you proper uh, utensils, I had toothbrushes. I had, uh, let's see, what did we use to clean toilets? We used uh toilet paper, sponges, um, uh, okay. you know, things like that. All right, I'm things creating a, you. You had, a lot of furniture. I weeded a lot of weeds,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, a lot of, a lot of hard physical labor, a lot of running. You run everywhere. There's yes. no walk. Do, right? do you have to wear any kind of special outfit or anything to s- signal to others that you're on the RPF? Yeah, it's black and gray. You wear black jeans, gray t-shirts. There's no other outfit. You have boots. So that's the uniform. There's a whole series of issues that lay out all the rules and regulations of the RPF. And there's a whole punishment thing that's in force called rocks and shoals. These are levels of discipline that they apply to you if you're not working hard enough, if you're found slacking off. You get very quickly into a frame of mind that you have to constantly be in motion, constantly working. Right. There's no slack time. You cannot ever, you do not ever want to be seen standing around. So mm-hmm. even if just doing, even if you're just wiping a wall that's you've already wiped 30 times, just because you know you just don't want to be seen idle. Right right because if the if the project leader or the RPF in charge comes around and sees that you're just standing around rocks and shoals goes into effect and you have to drop and give him 20 mm-hmm. or you have to do a lap around the, the block right you have to run around the block so you were probably in the best physical condition of your life I actually was after three <laughs> years I was in really good shape I had well, no
1: muscle wise I'm sure that's true uh, fatigue wise <laughs> I bet it's not
2: <laughs> mentally <laughs> let's just say that if you saw pictures of me when I graduated you would be it's kind of like those pictures of Mike Rinder he looked gaunt and pale and not you know like like your cheeks are sunken in and Aww. it's i was at i was at uh 135 i don't know something like oh, that oh man that's,
1: see no I that's that's, that's yeah, my thin. weight
3: <laughs> that's, yeah
2: i was yeah it was not yeah. uh I mean I don't look back on those yeah. that that time period with fond memories. I'm just trying to, you know, make some degree of light of it now, yeah. but it was absolutely positively the worst single worst experience of my life.
0: Man. And did uh, was there any uh, repercussions for the woman that you had the
2: uh, relationship with? Oh yeah, she got kicked off staff.
0: She oh, was
2: just out totally of it. okay. She's still a Scientologist in good standing. She reconciled with her husband. They have oh. some kids. They, but they left where they were working, which was in Las Vegas, and they both left staff. And she's in Florida now, and that's what they're doing.
0: What befuddles me constantly is just that I see Scientology as this machine that eats itself you know, mm-hmm. Saturn devouring its children. And it just seems like it's yeah. constantly spitting people out. And any negative thing, you know, oh, uh, the only solution is to get you out and as far away from the church as possible. And I just keep thinking, mm-hmm. how does it continue to exist? Mm-hmm. Because if you're getting
2: rid of members so quickly, you have to be taking new ones in, right? Well, it's only getting rid of people who won't toe the party line. And the, the carrot is this idea of personal spiritual freedom and immortality. And that's a pretty big carrot. It's a good carrot. Right? So, people will go through excruciating amounts of pain and suffering in order to achieve what they think is personal, spiritual freedom and immortality. And so, this woman, for example, and her husband did not want to give up that goal or dream of achieving that. So, they followed, they fell in line and did all the things Scientology told them to do. In order to remain in good standing with the church, This woman being
1: the the woman you had the affair with.
2: That's right. Okay. Yeah, it's so funny. I look back on. It. I, I. I. It's hard for me to even use the word affair. I know. I, I, I hesitate yeah. to use it too, but, yeah. but I don't
1: know what else to say. Non physical <laughs> affair.
2: I mean, there's there's no question about it, and I and I talk about it in the book. I, I was not. It was not a good thing for me to do, and I'm not proud of it. Mm-hmm. But I did reconcile with my wife, and in fact, I endured that three years and three months almost exclusively because. I wanted to reconcile with my wife, who
0: I yeah. loved. And during that time, did you get to see her? Did you get to still, like, no, nope. wow,
2: even at night, you didn't uh, get to go sleep? Oh, God. No, when I said that we were wife... sequestered from the rest of the group, I mean 24 7. We had our own dorms, men and women dorms. It didn't matter if you were married, because even if your wife got sent to the RPF with you or yeah. later, which happened, you, they were over in the women's dorm, you, you were over in the men's dorm.
0: Oh my goodness. So your wife was yeah. located maybe less than a mile from you, but you didn't get to talk to her?
2: No, I saw her a handful of times running ass, you know. Oh, oh my, I can't imagine what that would do to me.
1: Yeah, and, and, here, and, and here, if the organization, if, if Scientology's goal were really to rehabilitate you and to rehabilitate the marriage then 90% of that would be bringing the couple together, bringing the married couple together and helping you build that relationship back up. But here they separate you entirely. make it. It's so funny because they,
0: they have all these courses on relationships and how to improve your marriage. <laughs> right? Like they we're trying to sell you on them. I'm guessing that this is not in the playbook.
3: Yeah. No. Never
1: talk to your spouse no.
0: for three no. years.
2: I was evil and I, you know, and I was one step up from being destroyed. I mean, that's, that's mm. where you are when you're on the RPF is you are, in the full blown doghouse. And that's where I was. And it was all on me. You know, our relationship troubles and, you know, the reason that our marriage was rocky and all that. Well, clearly it was all my fault because of, you know, look what I did. Mm -hmm. So I had all the reparations to make and all the amends to do. And And at the time you bought into that you didn't question it. Totally did. And I felt I felt like shit for what I had done. So I, you know, so I willingly went and did that RPF program. And it got to the point where the only reason I stayed was because I loved my wife and I wanted to see her again and I wanted to keep that marriage. It wasn't because I was so enamored with the Sea Org because I was pretty unenamored with the Sea Org at that point. But the idea of leaving, no friends, no connections, leave my wife... That was unacceptable to me. So it was really devil in the deep blue sea. What do you do? You know, well, I'm going to carry on and I'm going to get through this program.
1: I'm sure this is in the book and I'm going to borrow it after Ross is done. But are you still with your wife now?
2: Oh, no, 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 no. When I left the sea organization, I left her. What happened was I finished the RPF. We reconciled. We got back together. But then within a year, I was being sent out on projects and missions all the time outside of Los Angeles. And I liked it because I was off base, so I was away from the crazy house, and I was eating better and you know sleeping better because I was out and about, Uh, mostly a lot by myself, which I wasn't supposed to be, but I was. Yeah, that's rare. Yeah, which yeah, I sort of I was kind of good at getting finagling into what I wanted to do. Within this totalitarian, you know,
3: <laughs> the
2: C-Or, right? I make it sound like I was in Club Med. And it's like, believe me, it was not even <laughs> remotely like that. But I was pretty good at finagling what I, you know, getting what I wanted to do. So I was out for about four years,
3: mm.
2: mostly like I like the longest stretch of time where I was back home with her was a stretch of two months.
3: Wow.
2: So our marriage tanked. You know, between three and a half years and then, you know, being together for a year and then I'm out and about all the time. And my perspective while I was out and about was changing. I was meeting people. I was out in the real world. I was seeing things. I was traveling. And so I was gaining all these wonderful experiences. And the more I would talk to her, she's still totally enmeshed in this bubble world. Our marriage just kind of fell apart.
1: Yeah. God, I mean, how could it not? (laughs) How well, exactly. You I mean, no and other, yeah. the
2: other thing you got to understand, of course, is that when you're in the C organization and you're dedicated to that level, your marriage is always going to take a backseat to mm-hmm. the priorities of the C organization. More people got divorced on the RPF than not. Mm. Right, because cause you're going to be gone on that RPF for a few years, and a lot of spouses didn't oh, want to deal with that. I'm they amazed you stayed else. together through. Yeah, the RPF. it was, I was a rarity that we actually stayed together for three and a half years. While I was doing that program, we we had letters and she would send me things through the, you know, through the little mail system, but we did not have direct contact.
0: And the reason you got married in the first place, it kind of reminded me of sort of the evangelical Christianity that I was raised in and that, you know, you were not supposed to be having sex unless you were within wedlock.
2: And, Big. no, oh, no. And, and so, the sea
0: Org. yeah, I had all this, you know, horrible guilt, you know, at the thought of having sex without being married.
2: Uh, and oh, yeah. If you have sex without being married in the Sea
0: Org, you go to the RPF.
1: Wow. That's so, where
0: you go. And you're saying this to all these, like, teenagers who have yes! signed up and they're in their, you know, young 20s. And you're saying you can't have sex unless you're married.
2: So what are people going to do? Get married. Get married. Yep. Exactly. When I was on the RPF, there were about, when I first arrived there, there were about 120 people on it. And... I can remember right now at least 5 who were there only because they had had sex out of wedlock. Oh god. <sighs> or or not even had gone, not hadn't even gone all the way. Oh my goodness. Right? Just finger stuff. In The sea organization the issue specifically states no heavy petting.
1: Oh Jesus. Uh, That's not uh, even finger stuff.
2: Yeah, you put your finger you put your hand down somebody's pants rpf man which, off you go which base is that i've always been unclear on the base system
1: i'd say that's second base
2: oh second i would have thought third well
1: i guess it depends is it is it over or under the underwear i think <laughs> underwear is the line
2: <laughs> well if you go past first base when you're in the sea org and you're not married
1: yeah yeah first you know. base is kissing i think everyone can agree first base is kissing yeah, yeah
2: you, that's you, as yes. far as you're supposed to you go. could get away with that okay yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: no hands kissing
2: no um, oh i've had i've seen knowledge reports you know that internal reporting system i've seen knowledge reports for people kissing for you know heavy kissing on the stairwell after hours and whatnot
1: Jesus. And like oh this
2: is ridiculous oh they have k r s for what's called
1: longing glances
2: two d flowing okay so <laughs> okay. Explain. Yeah. So the 2D is anything is Scientology's 2D is second dynamic anything having to do with sex. Oh right. That's Scientology's lingo for sexual activity is the 2D. Okay. So if you're 2D flowing, then that means that with your eyes you are looking at somebody suggestively, and that's they are looking longing
1: glances. The... That's what I was yeah. jokingly saying.
2: Oh my goodness. Yes. And if you are 2D flowing somebody, if somebody thinks that you're being flirty or flowy, as they call it, you will be written up. And if you're married, that's enough to get you on the meter with the ethics officer in an interview. What are you doing? What's, what is this 2D flowing? Even if you're just being friendly and Jesus. somebody mis- mistakes that for flirtiness, you're in trouble. Man.
1: No wonder you become robotic.
2: Heavily regulated in the Sea Org.
1: My goodness.
2: Wow. But wait, 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 Carrie.
1: Ross, is it?
0: I need a quick fix of some other audio entertainment.
1: Oh, okay. How, how about this one?
0: Comedy, friendship, and creativity. All of this and more wait for you at Max FunCon. Join us for Max FunCon in Lake Arrowhead next June or Max FunCon East in the Poconos next September. Tickets for both events are on sale now, but they're going fast. Visit maxfuncon.com to buy your tickets right now. That was good. Thank you, Carrie. You're welcome. That hit the spot. Okay, Whew. let's continue. Now you don't hesitate to call Scientology a cult, even a just nope. des- destructive cult. You that's exactly the term. Yeah. You make a point to distinguish that from just your bread and butter cults. <laughs> that's but right. yeah, I, I don't even think we need to make you justify that. I think we've already described plenty that falls within that that purview. Well, another fascinating thing that you've explained to me through the book is just the higher levels. Now you didn't. Go through any of these while you were a Scientologist, but then you read up heavily once you left uh, the church. At first, with some trepidation, but uh, after you didn't That's die, right. from, <laughs> you didn't die from pneumonia. And
2: <laughs> I thought my eyes were going to fall out. Yeah.
0: And so, so I was hoping maybe you could explain a little bit of that uh, to our listeners, and uh, w- maybe just set it up by saying a couple of cool things I learned are that a it's Zimu, not Zenu. Yeah. What? Yes. Yep. And yep. that he's really not the total story. That's just one piece of the puzzle. That's right. So That's right. Uh, I don't know how quickly you can run down this subject, but uh, wait,
1: hang on. This hang is fascinating. Uh, your book's <laughs> right here, and it says A to Z new.
2: <laughs> I know, I know, and South Park forced me to to do that.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, because it's a misunderstanding of it's a misreading of L. Ron Hubbard's handwriting.
3: Oh,
1: that that cursive M
2: script. Ah. Uh, and he even says it. He even spells it out in recorded in lecture. lectures. That's amazing. Yeah but people understood it and it's culturally at Xenu. So that's what I had to and, go with. And this but is why, I, this is why I
0: think Scientologists, their PR, when they used to have public oh. relations, people could say, I've never heard of this Xenu you're talking oh, about.
1: Oh, that's because you
0: now, got it. Now, if someone Brilliant. says that to me, I'll say, well, what about Zemu?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, right. totally. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> right. Of
2: little things that they'll stick on. Those are the kind of little things they'll stick on. Yeah, I mean that's that that's of,
1: the sort of thing a sociopath sticks on. But yeah, <laughs> oh my god, this is amazing. This is this is the story of the year. That it's zimu, zimu.
2: <laughs> rhymes with Inu. Yeah, No, the whole story is actually no zimu is only one part of it. It's a long story, and I'll just say that there's a lot more to the story than the intergalactic warlord. And in fact, the most damaging part about it is what zimu did. Not you know that Zemu existed Zemu was this was this overlord there 's this Markabian confederacy or the or the Galactic confederation, right which is these thirteen stars and you know all these trillions and trillions of people who who existed many many trillions of years ago. This is all Hubbard's mythology, and Zemu was the war was the guy who ran this galactic confederation. he was a Nero type person. And overpopulation was a real fucking problem for these guys. I mean, he, Hubbard makes claims that are outrageous about, you know, like billions and billions of people being on, on all the various planets. And so there being like trillions and trillions of people. Well, Zemu's idea to solve this overpopulation was genocide. And so he basically got everybody bundled all together. And the logistics of this are nonsense. And I break <laughs> down in my book how it's just utter tripe that this story could have any possibility of being true. But he engages in this mass genocide where he ships everybody from all these planets to Earth, which right. was called TIAC. and and blows them all up. You know, they they just use all these nuclear weapons and they just they just destroy everybody. But this civilization was aware of the fact that we were actually spiritual beings, not just uh, these meat bodies, right? Mm. So Zimu knew this and they knew they, they apparently back then people lived very, very, very long lives, like thousands and thousands of years with one body. Mm. Bodies did die. Aging wasn't a thing back then. So, one of the things that they had to do was, you know, all these, if they if you kill all the bodies, all these spiritual entities are going to be free to roam the universe and they're just going to go get more bodies and the problem's not going to be solved. So Zemu put force fields around the earth to trap all these spiritual beings here, because apparently, according to Hubbard's way of thinking, you can control these. Spiritual entities with electronics. <laughs> uh, he gets an escape from it, from logic on this though, because he says it's high level electronics that haven't been invented here on Earth yet. Oh, because I was going to so, say,
1: say maybe the Van Allen belts
2: holds us on TGAC. Yeah, you know Hubbard would probably incorporate <laughs> that if if you challenged him on it. Right. Nobody ever challenged him on it. So well, yes, of course. Means. And everybody goes, oh, okay. So these screens kept everybody trapped here, and Hubbard also said, and this is the important part, that because of the way thetans, spiritual beings, right, are put together, when an incident happens of great, tremendous trauma and force, like being blown up by a nuclear weapon.
1: For example.
2: You know, and, then, yeah, and there's a group of thetans who experience the same thing. They will group together. They will condense together. And because the incident is so traumatic and, and stress-inducing, they go into this semi-unconscious state as a Phaeton, right? Okay. So you can't kill a Phaeton. Hubbard said that over and over again. You can't kill him. But you can certainly drive them into apathy and inaction and unconsciousness. You can put them to sleep and that sort of thing. And this incident that happened here on Earth with all these nuclear weapons going off and mass destruction was supposed to clump these thetans together in clusters. This is the term he used, clusters. And these near-dead, unconscious spiritual entities or thetans eventually— Somehow, Hubbard does not describe how, but eventually, after a few million years, (laughs) the radioactivity dies down, life starts evolving on Earth, bodies start showing up again, and these clumps of thetans who have been stuck here all this time, trapped on this prison planet, start glomming on to the bodies. Oh, yeah. The incipient
0: Homo sapiens. It's never described exactly why or how.
2: That's right. Well, these spiritual entities and these clumps... Glom onto bodies. This was, they say, 20 million years ago, which was 13 million
0: years before approximately we split off from chimpanzees. So evolution t- is
2: all a fraud, according to Hubbard. Oh, well, that explains it. Okay, yeah. great. Now there's a whole other mythology to that. <laughs> so, Whew. yeah, so these clusters. That's all cleared up, up. <laughs> uh, yeah, so these clusters of spiritual entities, which could be you know they're not they don't have mass, so they could be like you know there could be thousands of them in a little gel-sized capsule, right? They're glommed onto bodies and they're called body thetans. and they because they're only semi-conscious, unconscious, come up for air sometimes and go back down, they think thoughts. they're living entities. Well there's a there's a single alive you me type thetan who's not semi-conscious, right. who runs the body. And he mm-hmm. and this Joe Thetan thinks he's the only Thetan running this body. He doesn't know that there's these gloms of body Thetans attached to these bodies. Now, there's, there's so <laughs> many logical fallacies connected with this. Please, let's not go too deep into it, because it just falls apart when you start questioning it. But this sure. is the theory. The upper levels, the upper Scientology levels are all about... Mm finding and addressing these clusters of spiritual entities or thetans or body thetans and telepathically communicating to them and ungloming them from you and freeing them. It mm-hmm. seems like if one were to try to sum up this massive
0: tangle of nonsense, uh, <laughs> it seems like getting to clear is all about like, oh, I'm a thetan and I have all these bad memories from now and from past lives. I need to get rid of those. Ah, I'm clear now. But wait, L. Ron Hubbard says, okay, you've reached that, shoot. Uh, it turns out you're actually not completely clear because there's all these body thetans and they've swarmed onto you. And so you then, got then OT1, it's just kind of like an informational session. OT2, you're doing like a bunch of auditing. OT3, you learn this whole backstory. And then yep. you can work off all these body thetans. But then, oh no, it turns out that there's these other ways that more thetans have actually latched onto you. And so then the higher levels, you have to continually
2: get rid of those as well well
1: yes it's like you're you're clear but you're not alone in your body
2: that's exactly right and that's the big reveal on ot3 it's not is not that zemu existed i mean he's just part of the story the big problem of ot3 is hello you got body thetans and you're gonna have to get rid of these things so people accept in scientology accept the zemu story because it's an origin story of where all these body thetans came from But their takeaway from OT3 is, holy shit, my life and my own self-determinism and free will has been being affected by all these glommed-on, half-aware thetans that are stuck to me that have been messing with my head and my thought processes my entire life, and I had no idea they were even there.
3: Right.
2: And so now I need to do OT3, and then when they do OT4 and 5 and 6 and 7— Every level is more and more body thetans. And, and even then, it seems like the whole Zemu story
0: is it's referred to as like event number two, essentially. Like, yes, that incident was two is what it's called. Incident two. So that was only 75 million years ago, but That's trillions right. of years ago, there was this uh, incident one. Incident one, and it was this yes. l- loud sound, and it uh, introduces the trumpets
2: all this- and the angels. Yes, it's, it's the entry into the physical universe from whatever Theta universe spirits were in before they came here. (laughs) Okay. And it's called Incident One. Everybody's got it. No matter who you are, if you're alive, this happened to you. And it's a very short, tiny little thing. There's not a lot of mythology around this Incident One. But Hubbard talks about it on the OT3 level as well as all the Zemu stuff.
1: So, Chris, do you think Scientology's here to stay or do you think it's dying?
2: It's definitely on its way out organizationally, it is shrinking. I, I, I like to call it the world's fastest shrinking religion, <laughs> just to counter their whole world's fastest growing religion thing. Right. And they keep trying to
0: say that, you know, they're in the millions of people. Now, are those numbers that actually look at
2: uh, people who have bought materials or is it just completely fabricated? I'll tell you, even if you stretch it out to how many people have ever bought the book Dianetics... It's still, I mean, I, like, how do you come up with these millions and millions and millions of figures? It has never, organizationally, if you look at membership, if you're going to define membership as somebody who would call themselves a Scientologist, say they're a Scientologist, say they practice Scientology in their life, there's no way that number has ever been more than 500,000 people. Mm. And, okay. and that's, in, that's historically speaking. I'm talking about like a sum total. Oh, because, not just at know, any know. one time. But yeah you because you know how they you know how they keep folders and they keep track of everybody yeah. who's ever made anything from them right right the largest group of that of those folders and files and whatnot is there on that base in Los Angeles and it's about 350,000 names
1: oh all right
2: with so millions and millions of members there you go. then wouldn't it stand to reason that the, that their central files would have file folders? Numbering in the millions of identities. Just out sure. of curiosity, have they tried to digitize any of that, or are they just still working with the folders? Okay, it is computerized as well as folders, but they're sticklers for old school because uh, sure, Elron Hubbard. That's how he detailed the process. But tell that's me, right.
1: tell me more about the dying religion.
2: Yeah, it's it's definitely on its way out. There have been a series of actions that have occurred since the nineteen late nineteen seventies. That have created an implosion in Scientology. Its growth period was the 60s and 70s, especially 70s. Huge. They hit the whole New Age, protest, counterculture thing, and they grew big time. College students, that sort of thing. I met more people who got into Scientology when they were in college smoking dope and reading Dianetics and thinking it was the bomb. That whole model went through the 70s. Hubbard started himself imploding in the late in the in the '70s, and because uh, he he got convicted of fraud in France, and the IRS was after him, and you know he was in hiding, and then the Guardian's office, you know, carried out that whole Operation FBI Snow raid. White, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, Operation Snow White. These are important milestones because Hubbard's reaction to that was to get greedier and more paranoid, and he attacked, he directly attacked the most successful parts of his own organization which were called the missions of Scientology. There were the lo- they were the levels of organization right below the class 5 orgs, the LA orgs, the you know the city offices right, like the Santa Barbara one that you were in. That's right. There were things called missions and they were frontline activities. They sold lots of books and they got people in for basic services. And they were huge. They were expanding like crazy in the 70s. They were bigger than the orgs. They were doing so well because they had smart businessmen running them. Well, Hubbard got greedy because he said, those people are taking my money. And Hmm. so the mission, the people who ran these missions were called mission holders. They had been given a franchise right to deliver Scientology but they were supposed to give 10% of their income to the church in re- in return for that. But they were making more money than Scientology was making.
3: Mm, okay. So
2: Hubbard was like, well, that's my money. So they attacked the mission holders. In the single stupidest blunder ever in 1980, 81, 82, they grabbed up all the mission holders, stuck them in a room. Literally, this happened twice. Hmm. And did these conferences where the C organization came in, David Miscavige personally and said, you guys are all a bunch of fuckheads. You guys are, are a bunch of suppressive people. You're denying L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology its expansion. And these guys are all sitting there going, what? Right. <laughs> it created this huge rift in Scientology and a bunch of people left and started forming up big independent groups.
1: Interesting. And
2: the early 1980s were a huge schism time for Scientology, which it almost didn't survive. Hubbard died in 86. Miscavige sort of reconciled and unionized the whole thing and got things together and used copyright law to drive Mm -hmm. the independents out of existence through stalking, harassment, infiltration, and lawsuits. Because that's back when they actually did flex their legal muscles to put down copyright violations. They don't do that anymore. So This all happened in the 80s and was the first big time where Scientology was growing, growing, growing. You can see my hand going up, up, up like a little stat graph. And then it started going down. And this is when they started losing members by the thousands. And what caused that? Was that the Internet? Well, no, no, no. This was in the 80s. This is when it started going down. And then they did something really smart. They promoted Dianetics. They got it back on the New York Times bestseller list. They had an international ad campaign that was successful. It was an accident that the campaign was as successful as it was. It was just the preliminary campaign to what they thought was going to be a bigger campaign. But anyway, you might remember, or maybe not, the do 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 Dianetics commercials, where they showed Mm-mm. they they were these ads, and they were wildly successful in 1986-87 time period. Okay. And Dianetics legitimately became another bestseller. And they started capitalizing on that with Dianetics groups and that sort of thing. And they started kind of averting the the downs. But then, David Miscavige, being the knucklehead that he is, canceled all of that. They then got rid of the guy in a big coup. Yeah, he's all about himself, right? So Hubbard died in 86. They get IRS recognition in 1993. Mm -hmm. And that was another little resurgence for them. Right. But... Here's the problem is ever since then, David Miscavige has been changing Scientology, making himself the guru, not L. Ron Hubbard, making himself the important part of Scientology and sort of rebranding it in his own image. And the more he does that, the smaller the place gets and the more dictatorial and, and, and ruthless and authoritarian it becomes and driving more and more people out. And the cap on this was in 2008 when Anonymous showed up. Mm. Mm. And the couch jumping happened. And then just <laughs> by accident, there was this video leak of Tom Cruise talking crazy. Yeah. eternal video that got yeah. leaked with him in the black turtleneck. Mm-hmm. Right. That is how Scientologists talk to each other. That video is standard plain operate. This is how Scientologists are. Right. But everybody looked at it and went, holy shit, Tom Cruise is crazy.
3: Right.
2: Well, that's how Scientologists are. So this video goes on the internet. Scientology tries to take it down. And Anonymous goes, oh, really? I don't think so. And they, you know, mirror it to 10,000 sites. <laughs> they, Anonymous then, as its own little collective, realizes Scientology is not a good group of people. There had been enough people who had come out by this point, had spoken out on the Internet, small little groups of people, not a lot of people. It never got traction in the press until Anonymous went, holy shit, these guys are bad guys, and started protesting it worldwide. Thousands and thousands of people in those V for Vendetta Guy Fawkes masks parading around Scientology. Right. Suddenly, Scientology is getting bad press everywhere. And its membership tanked and tanked and tanked because people are like, holy shit, this oh, is awful working. stuff. Wow. It worked in spades. This is what woke me up. Really? Okay. okay. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so, because um, it, it reached all the way in. You know, these protests, you could not ignore them. They were they were dancing around in front of our orgs like everywhere mm. and playing out music and have signs, you know, Zemu's my homeboy and all this kind of stuff. And oh, so, did they say
1: Zemu and not Zenu?
2: No, no, they said Zenu. Oh, OK. All right.
1: Just <laughs> I, curious I, if they if they South really Park, knew their I, stuff. I
2: know. No, they all, you know, South Park had happened at this point. Tom Cruise's backlash of his attempt to positively PR Scientology also recoiled on the church around this time. So all these things were coming together as a bit of a perfect storm, and, and, and the press finally grew some balls and started talking about Scientology overtly, and the church could not attack because it had been decimated internally already by David Miscavige. He was not growing the organization internally; he was ripping it up internally. Yeah. So this is all the this is all the background. Probably way too much, but it gives you the picture of why they have imploded. And David Miscavige has always been in it for himself. He was never in it to win it for Scientology. That was L. Ron Hubbard's gig, not David Miscavige's. Do you you think there's anything close to a succession plan? So if something happens to
0: David Miscavige, what would happen if uh, David Miscavige uh, got hit by
2: a bus? Well, that's the big question. My supposition is that it implodes. However, I have been schooled by an ex-Jehovah's Witness who does work similar to what I do, but he does it for Jehovah's Witnesses, Lloyd Evans. I've been schooled by him that... Jehovah's Witnesses had their David Miscavige time period hmm. with a guy named Rutherford back in the 1920s. Okay. Oh. Crazy guy took over the organization, almost imploded it. When he died, a council of people took over. Okay. And that's who runs the JWs now, these elders.
3: Right, right, right.
2: That could happen in Scientology. The the problem is that David Miscavige has been a man on a mission since the 1980s to actively get rid of anyone who threatens his position.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so he's decimated Scientology's management structure internally, and he's a one-man band up there, right? Scientologists don't even know this, but this is how it is. And so, you know, you look at, well, who would succeed him, and I look at the people who are there, and I go, well, they're all, they're all either not there or they're destroyed, so, who's going to take over? Well, maybe somebody comes along that we don't know about right now. It's plausible. It could, it could happen. But whoever it is, they're going to have to. The thing they're going to have to do to succeed is they're going to have to get the passwords and the keys to the bank accounts. Hmm. Mm, right. But Scavige is the only guy who's got those. And if mm-hmm. he takes off and he takes those with him, it's game over because that's where all that money is. It's in bank accounts. Wow. He's the one who has all the keys to the gates.
1: And now that they're recognized as a church and not as a non-profit, it would be very hard for the government to even step in and say, no, no, you have to hand those over because the government has so little oversight. It
2: would be a very, very messy takeover process if the government went in there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it would be nice if they would get up the gumption to do it, but it's admittedly a tricky, thorny situation. Yeah, you for know, sure. First, don't want another Waco, nice. and you know, or anything like that. And I think they're a little gun shy because the government remembers Waco, yeah, and mm-hmm. the backlash from that. And there was also, you know, proving something versus knowing something are two completely different things. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, this this um this lawsuit that had happened recently with Marty Rathman uh, and his wife Monique. Down in Texas where they were suing the church because the church was coming after them and stalking and harassing them and that sort of thing was the closest that the church ever came to legally having its corporate veil pierced where somebody was actually going to get in and get behind the PR and actually see how the sausage is made, so to speak, and they were going to get to David Miscavige. They were going to depose him hmm. in a courtroom. I mean, it was it was a it was it was actually moving forward in that direction. And then all of a sudden, Marty Rathman or Monique, his wife, dropped the lawsuit a few months ago hmm. and just mysteriously dropped it. There's not really a lot of understanding as to why. Huh. And um, and now it's. Nowhere that suit's dropped, and there is no other challenge to Scientology that is as strong as that one was. Well,
1: okay, so but uh, there is the Narconon lawsuit that's going on that uh, I presume you know about. That that does see, it seems like David Miscavige is going to have to go to court over that.
2: Mm, we'll see. Yeah, but if he does that's that's attacking Narconon, that's not attacking the Church that's of Scientology. Right. That's right. Scientology could shed Narcanon mm. in its entirety and not be any worse correct. For it.
1: Correct. It it would yeah. just be interesting to see like I, I guess just purely to see David Miscavige have to show up in court would be oh an God. exciting yeah. moment in everyone's lives.
2: <laughs> yes. That you would know- that would be amazing
1: but since you bring up marty rathbun he's an interesting character because he does seem to sort of uh tread both sides of the i'm I'm mixing 14 metaphors right now but (laughs) tread both sides of the coin uh but yeah you know uh after um
2: he paddles on both sides of the river
1: right (laughs) i saw i believe it was him after ruthless came out saw him sort of defending defending david Mm-hmm. which surprised me.
2: Well, that's the, been a big surprise for everybody. And yeah. I'm going to say right from the get-go, just because of because this is the right thing to say, I have no idea what is motivating him right now. Mm. I have none. I have no lying to him. I have no back channel knowledge or secret information from anybody because Marty Rathbun has disconnected himself from almost everybody that he used to know. Mm-hmm. He fired his lawyers from the lawsuit. He's disconnected from ex-Scientologists that used to be friends of his and whatnot. So I have no line to him, and nobody I know has any line to him. So mm-hmm. so everything that's said about him and why he's doing what he's doing right now is is pure supposition.
0: It's,
3: sure.
2: And for, for anybody who hasn't been following this closely, Marty
0: Rathbun used to be a very high-ranking member of the church. Yes. He
1: defected.
0: defected and
2: then spoke out against the church for a long time, but now yes. seems to be uh, maybe retracting that. Well, that's what's happening is he was featured in the Going Clear documentary from Alex Gibney. Right. Um, right. I actually know everybody in that documentary I've met them or interacted with them. And Marty's the only one who is now saying you know, that he's referring to the critic community of Scientology as, as a cult in itself. He's calling it the anti-Scientology cult, oh. and he's likening it to a cult, right, that has cult leaders and acts like a cult, you know, with us versus them thinking and that sort of thing. And there are definitely points to be made about any group of people forming us versus them thinking and and, and having to follow the leader mentality. And groups of people will act as groups of people will do. That's just sure. sociology. Um, so, you know, I don't see that the anti-Scientology community is any different than any other group that way. We certainly don't, what we don't have though, and what I will, will defend all day long is there are no cult leaders in the anti-Scientology community. Mm -hmm. There's just a bunch of people who got screwed over by Scientology and are speaking out against it. Mm -hmm. Marty Rathbun was one of those people. Now he's speaking out against the very community that he was part of and was quite an opinion leader for because he had been in Going Clear. And a new documentary that Louis Thoreau made called My Scientology Movie is coming out. It's already come out in Britain, and it's going to be coming to the U.S., I think, in January. Marty Rathbun is the central character of that documentary. Weird. And he's distanced himself from it. Has bad Louis Thoreau, has said that it was not representative of what he wanted to do. So I think his attacks against the community, and again, I'm going to stress, I think, his attacks against the community, uh, against me personally, he wrote a blog article against me personally,
3: oh.
2: are an effort by him to distance himself from Louis Thoreau's documentary and from what he thinks is this cult mentality that goes on in the in the ex-Scientology community. I don't see that cult mentality, and I'm I now consider myself... Pretty educated on the subject of cults and cult mentality.
1: Yeah. And he's an independent Scientologist himself, correct? Used to be. Oh, okay. Because he's featured in the Amazon, the the one that I saw on Amazon, the documentary about independent Scientologists. Right. He's in that.
2: When he first came out of Scientology and then revealed himself, he was actually practicing Scientology at his home in Texas. People would come to him and receive auditing. He, would, he, he got paid for it. And then the church started stalking and harassing him, like, really, really Yeah, Uh, following his wife. got attacked. And it was those attacks that were the basis of the lawsuit that his wife brought against the church. His wife was never a Scientologist. Right. So, you know, she was being stalked and harassed by Scientology. she, She never had anything to do with it. Right. So then that lawsuit got dropped when it was moving forward in a way that we all thought was very positive. And then Marty just shut down, and now he's attacking critics. Right. So you're kind of like, what's going on here? And there's all kinds of conjecture. But bottom line is, I have no idea what what his motivations are.
0: Right
2: Now, you as an outspoken critic of
0: the church now, revealing a lot of this information uh, and being so vocal, has the church
2: come after you in any way? I have been trolled. I've had, you know, the, the spammy emails and all that sort of thing, but I have not been stalked and harassed, not anywhere re- even remotely like Marty Rathbun and his family were. I haven't had PIs following me around or anything like that. I take precautions and my life is set up in such a way that I'm prepared for it if it happens, but um, but no, I haven't received that.
1: Do you think they're done with that?
2: No. I don't think they're done with that. There's been plenty of evidence of them stalking and harassing people. I mean, Ron Miscavige Senior. Mm, he was being yeah. followed around by PIs who had guns with silencers in their in their trunk, you know? I mean, these are these are not the Scientology is not is not a turn the other cheek religion and they're not Going to just stop doing that because it's in their very DNA to do it. In the course of our investigations, our listeners were
0: constantly expressing concern: "What's going to happen to you? Uh, is anyone following you?" And as far as we know, nothing like that has happened. And so I was wondering: Is it? it it's probably a combination of factors, but it seems like. A, they've lost some of their teeth just because they've had to fight all of these battles. Uh, yep. B, there's sort of a Barbara Streisand effect; it might work against them to yep. come after people like us because we just talk about the process and right. make people aware of it.
1: We're not defectors; we're sort of smaller beans to them. I right. imagine. Right.
0: Right. That's yeah. Right. See, all they, of
2: those factors. They all have of those factors. Bigger
0: uh, problems. Pride. Yeah. Mm-hmm. i was trying to not fry fish there. But oh, yeah. thank
1: you. Big, bigger, so, bigger <laughs> soy fish to fry. <laughs>
0: bigger,
1: bigger garden, vegan soy fish to fry. So I keep a telling great product by the way.
0: <laughs> I keep telling people that we picked a really good time to do our investigation because they didn't know about us until quite a ways into our investigation, and I, I don't think they see us as a worthy target.
2: No, the very, very true. The timing was everything. If you had done what you did prior to 2008. You would be destroyed right now. Okay. Like, I have no question about that. They would have stalked and harassed you and legal suited you and sued you out of existence. Because, yeah, what we did was uh, on the line of what, you know, like Paulette Cooper did. Mm
0: -hmm. And Not to compare ourselves to her or anything, but uh, she was sued almost out of existence.
2: Uh, And and remind
1: me, why specifically 2008?
2: Because that's when Anonymous came out.
1: Ah, right. Okay.
2: That was a big, 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 big deal. I can't stress enough how big of a deal that was. Scientology's whole survival strategy from Hubbard's policies are to bully people who criticize them until the until they stop.
1: Right.
2: And that's fair game policy,
1: right?
2: That's right. Fair game policy. And that bullying is 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 written into their DNA. It's written into the policies. You can't rewrite it because it was written by Hubbard. That's right. Oh, they love it. And there are people who work for the Office of Special Affairs who just get off on doing that kind of work. Now The problem is when Anonymous happened in 2008, thousands and thousands of people were suddenly criticizing the church. The church was never set up to deal with thousands and thousands of people at a time coming after them. It was always one or two individuals or a group that they could take out through legal actions and that sort of thing. But the very nature of anonymous made them unattackable. Mm. And and Scientology had been trying desperately to find the, I hear my arm with the air quotes again, the leaders of anonymous. Well, there are no leaders of anonymous it work <laughs> that way. So they didn't have a target to strike at. They did take out a couple of individual anonymous people who had gotten a bit too, you know, excitable. Uh, about what about their protest actions, but they couldn't take out Anonymous as a group, because Anonymous's very makeup makes it impossible to do that. Right. Scientology was flummoxed, and they couldn't fight back against that against that battle, and they lost so much public PR ground. They went from being a kooky sci-fi religion with with weird beliefs to people actually thinking that they were dangerous. So this is fascinating. I mean,
1: this is a story of, protesters really bringing something down. I mean, that's really amazing. And protesters working in masks, uh, literally in masks. uh, So having no leader, having no, we don't get to put someone on the TV screen and say like, here's the guy. Usually we have a narrative where we can say, here's the hero. We don't have the hero. They are both
2: in masks and in
1: masks. Yeah, that's That's right. That's amazing. And,
2: And it was the very nature of Anonymous that countered the church's effective actions that they had been using for 38 years to take down 48 years rather to take out their critics. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Is they couldn't do that to anonymous. Right. None of none of the church's countermeasures could work. And as a result, they got dealt such a hard blow. I mean, they got punched, they got bitch-slapped like hard internationally. Because this was going on in London, this was going on in Australia, this was happening everywhere. Russia had anonymous protests, you wow. know. So, so Scientology just got the just got the Joe Frazier, you know, knockdown, and they haven't really been able to get back up ever since. Wow! So well,
1: good job, Anonymous.
2: Yeah, pretty much. I credit them with so much. It was a very, very powerful blow. So, really, all Scientology has left
0: is kind of its large stores of cash and real estate and uh, its religious
2: exemption. How long do you give Scientology? it's i I can't answer that question really. You know, I could say three years, I could say thirty years, and I'd be and I could make a case for both. Mm-hmm. You know it all depends on when David Miscavige disappears, whether he disappears uh, willingly or unwillingly it doesn't really matter. When he he's the he's the glue holding the whole thing together right now, and if he disappears or when he disappears, because at some point he's going to die. I mean that's right. going to happen, right? Everybody dies. Sure. Uh, and I'm not suggesting he's going to die through some illicit means. I mean he's just going to he's going to die at some point.
0: Because right. so and, far everybody has. Yeah, that's
2: <laughs> Odds are. Yeah. Yeah, that he's gonna he's gonna die at some point, and uh, and whether he disappears and runs to the Caymans or whether he you know croaks from all the whiskey he drinks or whatever it is, um, that's gonna leave a vacuum, and how that vacuum gets filled is what's gonna determine Scientology's future as an organization. the The subject of Scientology is here forever. It's in books. It's in lectures. You can't. You know, it's like the shirt I'm wearing, you know, ideas are bulletproof. I mean, it's like, you know, I got my V for Vendetta shirt on. (laughs) You can't kill an idea. And and the ideas of Scientology are are out there. But, um... (sighs) You know, are they gonna, you know, as organized Scientology or like radical corporate Scientology? I think was something Marty Rathbun coined, actually, for talking about Scientology. That that thing is on its way out, and I see within the next one to two generations that it's gone. Okay. Okay. So you
1: couldn't say three years. You know, you're not sure if it's three years or thirty years, but you wouldn't give it fifty or sixty. Nah. Yeah. All right. No.
2: Not Not without something new happening that we're not seeing right now.
1: Right, right. Not without yeah. a big surprise. Which we have to
2: factor for because that, that happens all the time.
1: Of course. Uh That's, wow. <laughs> I think, all our questions but this has been <laughs> oh, no, amazing. We, we, we
0: could come up with 200 more but, uh, <laughs> right. man, it's so fun talking to you, Chris, and uh, you yeah. just have such a good attitude about it and you know so much, uh, so thanks for keeping the conversation going.
1: Yeah, you're basically like oh. the living historian of Scientology in my mind now. And <laughs> I have a question, I'm going to go to you.
0: So, so, uh, yeah, let me know. I uh, highly recommend everybody check out a Scientology A to Xenu. It's a great story, and, and you just learn about it from a lot of different angles. And I uh, like the way you've written it. How else can people follow you?
2: On my YouTube channel and on my blog, which is mncriticalthinking.com, I'll have a new three-part interview coming up, which will start explaining the culture of Scientology. And I've got two more books coming out. You know, one the, My next book is going to be about human rights violations in the RPF, and I'm actually going to tell the RPF story. Great. Yeah, and then the next one is going to be, well, I'll, I'll talk about the next one when I get to it, but it's going to be good. <laughs> but this culture, this, this view of looking at Scientology as a culture and not just a bunch of books and lectures, I think it's an important one. And, yes. um, and this, this interview will show that because I'm actually interviewing an entire family, not just one person. Mm. Wow! And juxtapositioning the different viewpoints of the people as this girl grew up in Scientology, people can see that on my YouTube channel and on my blog. So I would I would love it if they'd come around and subscribe and, yeah. and check out um, what I'm would. doing. And Wonderful!
1: We'll post that on our Facebook as well.
0: And you recently interviewed us as we've alluded to a couple times. So. Yeah, that was a, that was that was
2: really well received podcast, by the way. Oh, I got good. a ton of positive comments on that. I got to thank you guys a lot for taking the time.
1: Oh, our pleasure.
2: Our pleasure. Yeah. Well, uh, everybody go check that out as well.
1: One thing I always like to ask is, is there anything we didn't ask you that you wish we had asked you?
2: You know, I think the only thing that I didn't talk about at all is recovery from Scientology. And for me, of course, that's a big deal because my story is interesting, I guess. You know, my book is not my memoir. The first chapter covers that. But but it's for me, the important thing about getting the word out about Scientology is the fact that recovery from it and groups like it, because there's only about 5000 destructive cults out there, is possible. You know, getting out is the beginning of life, you know, and I, and I, I can't really stress enough how how good life is away from these things. You know, and I've really dedicated a lot of my time and effort now to trying to educate about not just Scientology. Scientology is one of many groups that people just get too wrapped up in. And that might be a good way of of putting it is it's just a group you get too wrapped up in, Hmm. you know, and there's lots of groups that people get too wrapped up in. People get too wrapped up in supporting Trump. People get too wrapped up in all kinds of things that we see cult-like behavior start to manifest. Mm. And it's good to get perspective and not get too wrapped up in these things. And that's been, the, I think, for me, the most important lesson I've learned from this whole thing is not how bad Scientology is. I mean, yeah, it's bad and it sucks and it's horrible, but so is Children of God. So is yeah, Om Shrinrinkyo and, and all these other groups. I mean, there's people are always going to fall for this crap. So if we can, until we can educate enough that people don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, you guys are doing that. I'm working on doing that. And I and I think we need a lot more voices of ours out there doing that. You know, I think I think it's the I think it's the walk away from this whole thing. You we'll know, don't get too wrapped up in stuff.
0: Right. <laughs> well, uh, keep up the work. Keep rationality working, and we'll uh, we'll see you around. Yes, Abs- thank you so
1: much. Your work is so important, and and, uh, and you're a wonderful interviewee. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. Well, that's it for our show, and thanks again to Chris Shelton.
1: Boy, what a great guy. Wealth of information.
0: Uh, we apologize to Chris. We recorded this quite a while ago.
1: <laughs> yeah, several months ago.
0: We're <laughs> just now releasing it. But we do have a very fun promo now that we just recorded.
1: Yeah, I think anyone who has been following Scientology for a long time— We'll find this promo a little familiar.
0: Enjoy. From the dawn of time, one
3: podcast has unlocked the secrets of science and technology to enrich the lives of billions. And now, after a year where they've unlocked the golden age of
0: knowledge, they're about to hit warp speed and go stratospheric.
3: Wait,
1: hold
0: up. On Oh No Ross and Carrie, we don't make extraordinary claims, we investigate them.
1: We go undercover with fringe religious groups, investigate paranormal claims, and we participate in pseudoscientific medical treatments and then report our findings to you.
0: And yes, we've even investigated...
1: Scientology. Shh. New episodes every month at MaximumFun.org.
3: Oh No Ross and Carrie. They show up so you don't have to.
2: MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture.